0: Thank you for accessing this audio resource from Glad Tidings Church. This is Pastor Tim Rice. I hope you enjoy the message and receive some benefit from it. If you do, please let us know. Send your comments to info at gladtidings.church Now here's this week's message. So tonight what I want to do is I want to look at an episode um, in uh, the book of Second Kings. It's an episode that takes place near the end of of the life and near the end of the ministry of the prophet Elisha. And so if you have your Bibles open to 2 Kings chapter 13, let's read one verse and then I'm going to make a few comments and we'll come back and read the rest of the passage, all right? But 2 Kings chapter 13, verse number 14 says this, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash the King of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, "My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horse and its horsemen." Now, uh, due to the way that the Bible records the uh, secession, the succession of the kings of Israel and then also of Judah, it's sometimes difficult to keep all of the kings straight. And to keep them in order. The Bible, uh, what the Bible does, it does a very good job of recording in chronological order the different kings of, of Judah. And what first, it you know, starts with David and then Solomon, and then the kingdom divided into two kingdoms. And so the Bible does a very good job of recording in chronological order the different kings of Judah. And, and Israel however because their reigns overlapped in the two kingdoms the different kings their their reigns overlapped with one another it's necessary for the Bible to kind of flip back and forth to switch from talking about a king of Judah then talking about the king of, of Israel and in fact that's how they're located usually historically so the Bible will say something like you know in the third year of the reign of such and such king of Judah, then so-and-so became king of Israel. And he reigned for this long, and then in this year of his reign, then this one became... So it sometimes gets confusing as it flips back and forth from king king of Judah to the king of Israel. And it doesn't help that some kings actually share the same name or um, a similar name, sometimes Uh, The same name of a different king from a different uh, kingdom. And and sometimes there's variant spellings of the different names of the kings of Israel or Judah. So sometimes it's hard to keep track of. And that's the case here, actually, in 2 Kings chapter 13. Joash is actually the name of a king who had reigned in, in Judah. Um, and uh, actually Joash was a variant spelling of Jehoash. And so if you see Jehoash or Joash, you know it's the same it's the same name and Joash was a, a king in Judah and actually he was a very godly king in Judah. He had reign he reigned 40 years in Judah and he was a very godly king. But ironically, in fact it seems that it was at the end of of the reign of Joash, king of Judah, that then um, Joash, the king of Israel, began to reign. Same name, Joash or Jehoash. Uh, same name is used uh, for him as well. And uh, so as the king of Joash, the king of Judah ended his reign and died, then Joash, the king of Israel. Uh, came to the throne in Israel. So it's the same name, but it's a different king. In fact, it's a very different king. because where Joash, king of Judah, had been a godly king, Joash, the king of Israel, was a wicked king, a very wicked king. And that's important to understand um, uh, as it because as it relates to this episode here between Joash, king of Israel, And Elisha, because it may seem that Joash has come to Elisha, the prophet, at Elisha is on his deathbed, and it may seem that Joash is expressing grief over um, Elisha's impending death. In fact, do you remember that when Elisha? uh, witnessed the uh, homegoing of his predecessor, as prophet Elijah. Remember, Elijah was caught up in a, in a uh, chariot to fire. And Elisha said something very similar, didn't he? He said, my father, the, the uh, horsemen and the chariots of Israel. And it was, uh, it was a way of him exclaiming that, that his predecessor, a man that he loved and that he respected, was going on to, uh, to heaven. And so here's Joash, with the same kind of words in his mouth while he is kneeling and crying before the bed of Elisha the prophet. And so it might sound like he's expressing grief over Elisha's death as if he had some kind of affection for Elisha or as if um, he had some kind of sympathy for the things of God. But that's not the case. It's not the case. He, he doesn't have any affection for Elisha, the prophet. He doesn't have any sympathy for the things of God. In fact, if there is any genuine emotion in this scene, then it is, it is panic that Joash is panicking upon the death of Elisha, uh, the prophet. It was um, if you remember, it was because of their great wickedness that God had handed Israel over to the foreign power, Syria. God had given Israel over to the hands of the Syrians because they they had increased in wickedness. In fact, it was Joash's father, Jehoahaz, that was a wicked king. And the Bible says that because they had become so wicked that God handed them over to the Syrians to be punished um, and to be disciplined by the Syrians. But Joash's father, Jehoahaz, uh, who was also a wicked king, had actually, uh, during that time, began to seek God's favor. He didn't change his ways, but he began to cry out to God because God had handed him over to the Syrians. And because of that, God actually gave Israel, during Jehoahaz's reign, actually gave Israel a little bit of a reprieve. They weren't completely destroyed Uh, by the Syrians. Nevertheless, during Jehoahaz's reign, Israel's ability to wage war was dramatically reduced by the Syrians. In fact, this is what verse 7 says. If you look back in chapter 13, a a few verses earlier, this is what verse 7 says. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So it was because of Israel's wickedness that God handed them over to the Syrians. The Syrians had almost destroyed them. And this is the kingdom that Joash inherits. It's, It's a nation that is in decline, it, is, um, it has a military that has been decimated, and it is a nation that is being dominated by an aggressive neighbor, the, the Syrians. And so they're in, they're in deep trouble. This is the nation that Joash has inherited. This is what he has become king uh, over. And so Joash has come to Elisha not out of concern for the prophet, not because he bears any affection for the prophet or any concern even for the things of God. Joash has come to Elisha because he is fearful for the future, because he knows the Syrians are about to crush his nation. And so what happens next All of that was important to kind of set the groundwork for what's happening next. And what happens next is is an interesting episode in God's word. Let's return then to verse number 15, 2 Kings 13, verse 15. So Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it, and then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. Verse 18, and he said, take the arrows, and he took That's. Um, Elisha said to the king, take the arrows. And so the king took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Verse 19, and the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now, before I, before I move to the main point of what, that I want to make tonight from, from this passage, let me point out something that's, that's easy for us to overlook if we're not careful, something we're, that we would take for granted if we're not careful, and that is I want you to notice how, how gracious and how good God is. Who knows he's a gracious God? He's a compassionate and a loving father. Aren't you glad that he is a forgiving God? Amen. It was. Remember, it was because of their wickedness that Israel was oppressed by the Syrians, and yet God had already shown favor to them. God had already shown mercy to them when Jehoahaz, Joash's father, sought the Lord's favor. Um, but, and again, that was not because of Jehoahaz, it wasn't because Jehoahaz was such a godly king. He wasn't. He was a wicked king, yet he called on God and God showed mercy, right? And gave Israel a reprieve because of, his, because of God's great love for his people. He's a good God. He's a gracious, heavenly Father. So that was only because God was compassionate and because he was kind that he showed them a reprieve during Jehoahaz's reign. And now several years later, here's Joash, Jehoahaz's son, once again crying out in desperation because of the threat of the Syrians. He knows uh, Elisha's about to die, it's the end of an era, and he knows that Uh, God's wrath is sure to come against Israel. And so he's crying out because of fear of the Syrians, because of the threat of the Syrians. And Abedin knows God is under no obligation uh, to bail Joash out. God is under no obligation to save Joash. Why? Because Joash was a wicked king. Um... So God was under no obligation to save him. If anything, if anything, judgment had been already been delayed. So if anything, judgment was past due. And Joash, like his father, was a wicked king. And if anything, he deserved to be punished and to be disciplined um, by the Syrians. Yet, once more, listen, once more, God who is rich in mercy and whose steadfast love endures to all generations. Once again, God relents, and he promises Joash that he will defeat the Syrians. That's Listen, that's just God's mercy, isn't it? It's just God's grace. I know that there are many people who Look into the Old Testament, and they say that they see there in the Old Testament a God of wrath, um, a God of anger, a God of judgment. And listen, there's no denying the price of rebellion that we see uh, portrayed in the books uh, or in the pages of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. It's true. It's there. Um, People suffer the consequences of their wickedness and, and their sin. So there's no denying that it's there. However, everywhere I look, listen, everywhere I look, I see a God of second chances, don't you? I see, I see a God who gives people the opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and to turn and to call on his name and to be saved. Aren't you glad that we serve a gracious God, a compassionate, heavenly Father, amen, (laughs) that he gives us not just second chances, but how many knows he gives us multiple second chances to call on him and be saved. So a God who relents of calamity that is deserved, and that redeems his people from the consequences of their own hard-heartedness and their own sin. How many knows that is a God that is worthy of our praise and our worship, amen? So he's a God who relents of the calamity that we bring on ourselves. And that's what's happening in this passage here as well. Once more, once more, God delays the destruction. Uh, that Joash and Jehoahaz in Israel, once more, God delays the destruction that they have that they have brought upon themselves um, because He cries out in mercy. What a great God! What a gracious heavenly Father! Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God does not give us what we deserve? Aren't you glad that He has grace uh, upon? us? Instead, He gives us grace upon grace upon grace. And so Elisha instructs Joash here, Um, Joash cries out, so Elisha instructs him, take a bow and arrows, and so the king takes a bow and arrows, he instructs him to shoot eastward out of an open window, and as he does this, as uh, the king shoots the arrow, here's what Elisha, Elisha prophesies, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek, until you have made an end of them, so God promises <clears throat> God promises Joash victory in spite of Joash's wickedness and, and his sin. But then Elisha tells the king to do something um, that's kind of interesting, strange. He Elisha tells the king to take the remaining arrows in his hand and he tells him to strike the ground, hit the ground with the arrows. So it's an odd request, but Joe Ash complies, and he strikes the ground how many times? Three times. Three times. He strikes the ground three times with with the arrows. Um, now, if you and I, um, if you and I had been there, what would you have done? I mean, you probably would have scratched your head too a little bit and said, "Yeah, what am I supposed to? Why am I striking the ground three times with the arrow? Or how many times am I supposed to?" So you know, I kind of my heart goes out a little bit to Joe Ash here because he didn't know what he was supposed to He just struck the ground, so he struck the ground three uh, times. And so Elisha immediately becomes angry, and Joash uh, must have been confused. And and then this is what Elisha says to Joash. He says, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times times. Now, presumably, presumably there was no way for Joash to know to know it. Uh, but unwittingly, Joash had actually limited what it was possible for God to do for him. Do you see that? He, you know, he may not have had any way of knowing it, but unwittingly what Joash did was he actually limited what God was able, what God could have, what God wanted to do for Joe Ash. Now, I want you to think about that for uh, just a minute tonight, and I want you to consider whether or not it's possible that you have ever uh, limited God from something that he wanted to do in your life. Have you... When you look at that example, do you consider that maybe, you know, it might be possible that sometimes I've prayed and asked God to do something in my life. I've faced some situation. I've cried out to God. And God's a merciful and a gracious God. He hears us when we pray. He gives us second and third chances. And he pours out grace in our life. But you know, it is possible that when I have prayed before about a situation, God has intervened intervened and unwittingly I have actually limited what God could do what God wanted to do in my situation, just like Joash did here. Un- unwittingly, he actually limited what God could have done for him. God, he actually limited what God wanted to do in his life. Elisha told Joash that he, <coughs> excuse me, he said you should have struck the ground five or six times because, here's the point, if you, if you had done that, Joash, if you had done that, then... God would have given you that many victories over Syria. However, since he had only struck the ground three times, God would only give him three victories over Syria. So here's the point. God was able, God was able to do more for Joash than Joash was even able to think or imagine. God was able to do more for Joash than Joash could think or imagine. And listen, and that's that's actually what Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, isn't it? Do you remember that passage? Ephesians 3 20 says this, now to him who is able to do what? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, far more abundantly than anything we think or ask or even imagine according to the power that is at work within us. How many knows God is able to do more than we think or imagine? Amen. Sometimes we limit him because we think, well, he can only do this, or I'm only asking him to do this, or I'm only wanting him to do this. And God is saying, no, I want you to have faith that I can do more than you can even think, more than you can even imagine. So it's, it's possible that that sometimes we limit God in the same way that Joash did, that we limit God from what he wants to do uh, in our life. So we don't always stop to consider that sometimes we might be actually preventing God from doing more because we won't ask, or maybe because we don't think that he actually will do more in our life. Now, I've as I consider that, I, I think I think back, and I probably have limited God in certain situations in my life. I've prayed and asked God to do something, and and I've not had enough faith to believe that God could even do even more than I was even asking, or that I was even even thinking. I wonder tonight: Have you have you ever? Have, do you think you have ever limited God? in what he wants to do in your life. Why, why is it that Joash limited God? Why, why did he only strike three times and not five times or six times? Uh, why don't we think God can do more than we even ask or think? Well, I want to suggest a couple of reasons tonight why we sometimes limit God. Number one is because, number one, it might be because we know that we're not worthy of God doing more for us. Now, I've already made the point that Joash was not worthy for God. Uh, to, God didn't have to save Joash. Joash was a wicked king. God didn't owe Joash anything. How many knows God doesn't owe us anything, right? <clears throat> and here's the thing, Joash probably knew that. When he was weeping at the feet of Elisha, he knew, hey, I'm a wicked man But Elisha's about to die. Here's the prophet that has got us through so many trials and problems in the past. Now he's about to die. What am I going to do? And so Joash probably knew he was not worthy. He he knew that he was asking a favor of God, that he had no right uh, to believe that God would do anything for him because he knew that he was a wicked man. And so that probably limited what he thought God could or God would do. For him, right uh and and we can we can fall into that same kind of thinking as well, right when we're praying and asking God to hear our prayers to answer our prayers listen um it's easy for us to say god, I know that I know I don't deserve this God, I know that I'm not worthy. you probably you probably won't do this for me right uh I know I don't have any right to ask this, God, but would you please just, if you'll just do this, God, I, I know I don't deserve this, but God, if you'll just at least do this. And sometimes we are timid in our prayers and, and we lack the faith that we ought to have because we know that we're not worthy for God to do those. And listen, that's absolutely true, right? We're not worthy for God. Uh, to do that uh, for us, but here's the thing, God doesn't do it just for us. God does it not for us, but God does it for his glory, amen? Why, Why did God answer Jehoahaz's prayer and give a reprieve to Israel? It wasn't because of Jehoahaz, it was because of God's great love for his people, amen? And it was because of his great concern that his name would be glorified. Amen? So one of the things that can hinder us and hold us back and make us timid in our prayers and diminish our faith is because we know that we're not worthy and we approach him thinking that, well, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to do this for me. There's a second reason that we sometimes limit God, and that's because we know That we're not able to do what God, uh, what we want God to do. See, (coughs) excuse me, Joash was very aware uh, that he had no power and no ability to defeat the Syrians. I read for you earlier the description of uh, the army that Joash was left with. It was no match for the Syrian army. And if Joash was making a calculation on what he thought it was possible for God to do based on the number of men that he had in his army. Then how many knows that Joash could not dream and could not imagine that he would defeat the Syrian army one time, much less four times or five times or six times. He knew that if it depended on him, that would be absolutely impossible. Right? And here's the mistake that we sometimes make in our prayer life when we go to the Lord. First of all, we make the mistake of thinking, God, I'm not worthy for you to do this uh, to me uh, or for me. But God, if you will do this for me, here's, here's what I think is possible based on, based on the circumstances that I'm looking at, right? And so we make our plans based on the data that we're looking at, Right? And so we, we look at the bills on one side of the table, and we look at our checkbook on the other side of the table, and we say, okay, God, I need a little bit of help getting these things to meet somewhere in the middle, and God, if you'll just give me enough money to just cover some of these bi-. So we make calculations based on what we think is possible for God to do, right? God I believe you can use me or you can take me and you can do these things. I, I don't have enough faith to believe you can do all of this because I just don't have it to offer. And so we make the calculation of what God can do based on what we think we can do. And so because of those reasons, we, we sometimes limit what God wants to do because our attention and our focus is entirely on who? Us. God, I know I'm not worthy for you to do this for me, but would you please do it? God, I know that I know that I don't have much money. I don't have many gifts. I don't have a big army. So God, if you can just help me to squeak out one or two victories or pay this bill or that bill, if you can just give me one victory over here. And, and our focus is completely on ourselves, and it's, it's how we think and because we're thinking only of ourselves that we limit our ability to trust in a God who is able to do greater things than we even think or imagine. How many knows it's not about us? It's not about us. God... <clears throat> is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that we think or imagine. And he does it not, not because we deserve it. we got to get that out of our mind, right? He doesn't do it because we deserve it. He does it because of his grace and because of his mercy and because he loves his people and because he has a desire to glorify himself. In our life. God is, is able. When we look at ourselves, we know that we're weak, and sometimes that has the effect of making us underestimate what we think is possible for God to do. But if instead we will look at God, if we'll look at how gracious he is, how good he is, how abundant in mercy great in power he is and how many knows that has the ability to lift our faith and believe that God is able to do not just what we think is possible but what we may think is impossible God is able to do it amen amen let me illustrate that if i <coughs> if you're here tonight and you had a need and i offered to help you you say pastor i have a need Tonight, and I said, Well, I want to help you with that need. And I took out my wallet. I don't have my wallet here because I was afraid somebody would come up and ask me that. And no, I'm just kidding. But I took out my wallet and I said, Look, okay, I want to help you with that need. I opened up my wallet and I had $100. I said, Listen, I got $100. What, what do you want? How can I help you with $100? Well, you might look at that $100 and decide, based on <clears throat> based on that $100, you might say, Well, you know, I don't want to take your $100, um, maybe 50, can you give me $50, and so I'd give you 50, $50, or maybe you'd be so bold as to say, well, yeah, you know, I, need, <clears throat> I need the $100, and I, I, could, I would hand you the $100. Um, here's the point, um, what, I, what I have to offer you would affect how much you ask for, right? What what I have to offer is going to influence how much you ask for, and what you believe that I could possibly. If I've only got a hundred dollars and your need is a thousand dollars, then you know you're not going to get more than a hundred dollars help from me because my resources are are limited. No, for that reason, nobody likes to be the last one, or nobody likes to take the last dinner roll at the table, do they? Except my kids. If we're at if we're at if. <laughs> If we're at Red Lobster, they don't mind taking that last cheddar biscuit, man. They, they'll fight over that last cheddar biscuit. Uh, but nobody likes to be the last. Nobody likes to take the last dinner roll. Nobody likes to take the last piece of chicken, uh, off the plate, right? Or the last slice uh, of pie. On the other hand, if you're at Red Lobster and you know, hey, they're going to bring more biscuits from the back, you know and there's like this unlimited supply of biscuits that's coming from the kitchen, then you just say, what? Just keep them on coming, right? Because I know that they're not going to run out. So just keep them uh, coming. So, so for illustration, so if I had a billion dollars, and you had a, had a need, and I'd say, hey, I've got a billion dollars. What do you, what do you need? Then, then you'd be a little bit more bold, wouldn't you, about your need, and you'd say, well, you know, here's, here's what I really Need you to do. Do you see how that changes your perspective of what you expect from the person that you're asking uh, for help? Well, how about this? What if you believe that God is an unlimited source of grace and goodness and power? How many believe that? That God is an unlimited source of grace. And power and goodness. In him, there is no lack. <laughs> Amen. He doesn't have a bank account. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The whole world, the whole universe is his. Amen. So, what if you believe that God is an unlimited source of grace and goodness, and that what he wants to do is he wants to use all of the grace and all of the goodness that is at his disposal? It's an infinite supply of it, and he wants to use all of it to do what? To glorify himself in your life, to bring himself glory in your life. He says, "I've got all this grace, and I've got all this goodness. I've got all of all that you could ever want, all that you could ever need. It's all at my disposal, and I want to use it. I want to use it to glorify my name." in your life what what is it that you need what is it that you desire if we really believe that then how would that change the way that you are the way that you pray for the needs that you have how would it change the level of faith that you have when you go to god and you cry out to him and say god you see and you know god where i'm at and you know what i'm going through Jesus said it this way, he said, we need the faith of a little child. What's what's unique about well there's several things that are unique that's unique about the faith of a little child, but one thing that's unique about the faith of a little child is that generally speaking, they're not afraid to ask for impossible things, are they? <laughs> until here's the here's the key, until they know better, right? So when they when they start to learn the world and they say well mom and dad you know used to i thought mom and dad had all the money in the world you know they just went to the bank and got money and wrote checks and handed the people credit cards and just whatever i wanted mom and dad just took care of it you know but they, but they do reach a point where they realize hey mom and dad aren't as rich they're not they're not as smart as i used to think that that they were and so when they learn the ways of the world and they learn uh those things then Uh, they stop believing that way. But a little child, a small child, believes anything's possible, right? They're not ashamed to ask for big things. Uh, You know, we've got our... (coughs) um, Abigail's got her Christmas list on our fridge. She's already got her Christmas list. Listen, her Christmas list is color-coded already. So these are... Must have items. These are want to have items. These are okay, maybe items. And listen, some of those items are dream big items. And we've already, listen, we've already started trying to talk her down a little bit and say, now you know, now you know that you might not get this, you know, but she asks anyway because she thinks, hey, uh, no harm in asking. Amen. <laughs> so Jesus said we need to have that kind of faith the faith of a little child that goes to our heavenly father and says, says God, I know. I'm not worthy I know that I don't deserve it but I also know that you're a great God you're a gracious Heavenly Father who loves me and you desire to glorify yourself in my life and so that we should come to God with that kind of bold faith and say God I believe that you're able to do exceedingly more than I even think Or imagine and so I'm gonna ask you and I'm gonna believe you to do big things in my life I'm gonna expect you God to do great things in my life because I don't want to limit what you want to do in this situation I just want to trust in your love trust in your grace trust in your power And know that, God, you do all things good, and you do all things well. You see how that could transform the kind of faith that we have when we go to our Heavenly Father and we cry out to Him when we're in distress or when we're in trouble. Joash didn't have that perspective because, again, he didn't know God the way that we ought to know God, that we should know God. He knew that he was unworthy. He knew he was a wicked king. He knew that he only had a small army. And so he said, uh, so he underestimated what was possible when he cried out on God. Let's not make that same mistake because we know that we have a heavenly father who loves us and who is able to do great things, mighty things in our life. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow your head and close your eyes. Pastor Belinda, if you don't mind, come back to the piano and we're going to pray. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions or would like more information about following Jesus Christ, please contact us at gladtidings.church. If you live near Dunn, North Carolina, please consider visiting our church on Sunday mornings at 1030. You can also download our church app in the iTunes or Google Play app store and receive updates and notifications. You may use the app to make a financial gift to help support our ministry. God bless you.